Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black leg. If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning. This is Annie. And g'day, Rebecca. How are you? Yes, I'm good. Thank you. How was your your sojourn in Sydney? Oh, it was was lovely. I was hanging out in Mossman. Mm. (laughs) In uh, Grand <laughs> Waringa oh, electorate, nice. yes, we were uh, plotting and scheming uh, <laughs> under under Tony's nose. <laughs> there you go, uh, stand up. Yep. <laughs> and uh, there were lots of people standing up over the last uh, week. Yes. Uh, I went off to uh, the climate change. Uh, a rally. It's yep, school uh, strike. School strike. Yep. Yeah, the school strike. So we're going to kick off with that. We've got a um, report that uh, gives you some of this. Uh, welcome to country. It starts off with Uncle Dave and moves on to a few speeches and then Box Pop, which were collected by Matt Kunkel. So let's awesome. kick off. Yes. Rominska! Rondri! Beck! Welcome to Wurundjeri country. My name is Uncle Dave and I'm an elder of the Wurundjeri Tribe Land Council. The land where you are gathered here today to protest about what we're not doing about the health of this country. I first off pay my respects to my ancestors, my elders, both past and present, but also my emerging elders, my young children, who are probably out here in the crowd somewhere fighting for their country fighting for their mother. I pay my respects to all other Aboriginal people who are gathered here today, their ancestors and their elders. I pay my respects to Bunjil, who gave us the laws to care for this country, which has been ignored for far too long. And we need to start thinking and listening to the country and listening to the laws of my ancestors, because we've had climate change before and we'll have climate change again. But the Aboriginal people who never ceded their land in this country survived those climate changes before. We survived colonisation. We'll survive the next climate change. But we can't survive it by ourselves. And I am really impressed by the amount of people that are out here today. This is the largest crowd I've ever been. Because it is only by being together and showing the strength that I can see and I can actually feel the power of us as people to direct our government, 
to do the right thing and make sure that we have a future, not only for all of us standing here today, but for my children and your children, and my grandchildren and your grandchildren, and for all the future generations to make sure that we exist and continue to exist. Wamindjika, Wurundjeri Burke, welcome to Wurundjeri country. Thank you.
isn't my chance to get us pumped. Woo! today to stand in solidarity. I'd like to thank all the unions and organizations that are supporting us. Everyone, this is our future we're fighting for. The biggest thing that fuels my drive for this movement has stemmed off of a lesson I learned through Greta. The biggest mistake you can make is sit back and think that someone else is going to save the planet for you. This planet is ours. It belongs to me. It belongs to you. It belongs to us. Where you, each and every one of us has a voice, and today we're using it to unite as one. This is our home, and it's not being taken care of. So it's time we step up to take care of it ourselves. I want you to think about the fact that today, young kids as little as eight years old from all over the world are striking. The younger generation has been forced to think about how they're going to survive. They've been forced to think about what they'll have to do to ensure that they can live a safe and normal life when they're older. This is their childhood. To all the adults in the audience, I want to I wanna have you think about what your childhood consisted of. How was your childhood like? Did your childhood involve you thinking about how you'll, survive, how, how you'll survive in a world where temperatures and sea levels are rising? The rate of natural disasters will be accelerating? Did you feel so uncertain about your future that you had to strike? <laughs> It's funny how the world works. If scientists were to say they found a cure for cancer, you will listen to them. But when scientists say that 
Climate change is real and we need to act now. You choose to ignore them. You need to pick a side. You either believe in science or you choose to ignore it. You cannot accept only the facts that benefit you. You cannot cherry pick data. Scott Morrison, with all due respect, perhaps it'd be a good idea to update your scientific knowledge. In fact, why don't we switch roles for a day? You go to school while we'll take care of your office. I think that's a good idea. Australian leadership is currently failing us, and young people are sacrificing what they love to protect their future. That goes to show that this generation is brave, it's strong, it's courageous, and most importantly, it's hopeful. We will not back down until we get what we want. Only having 12 years to lower carbon emissions by 50% isn't going to be easy, but we don't care because it needs to be done. In order to see any kind of change, you need to take the first step. I'd rather sacrifice a day of my education today to demand action on climate change than have my kids' school be canceled due to a heat wave or any other natural disaster. I want you to take a moment to look around you. Look at all the people gathered here today. It's not just us in this fight. This is happening in over a hundred countries in the world today. Look at us. Look at what we've done. This is the future that we want to preserve. As Halsey has said, this is only the beginning. This is not the finale. And that is why we're here. And that is why we rally. Change is coming whether you like it or not. Thank you very much. This strike puts pressure on politicians. Another thing we can do is call MPs and tell them that we want a climate leader. The federal election is just around the corner and it will determine which party and which government chooses our climate policy. It's pretty important. We want a government who puts Australia's people before the politics. We want a safe climate future. Now, from the stage, we're going to be calling Bill Shorten, the leader of the opposition party, to tell him that we want climate leadership. So around February, Naya and I and a few other um, students met with Bill Shorten in his office in Canberra and we asked him if he would be the climate leader that we all need. He has not made any change to Labor's um, climate policy and this is not good enough. So now we're going to call him and tell him what we want. What do we want? And when do we want it? Okay, we're going to call him now, so make sure that you're as quiet as you can be, because otherwise the person on the other end of the phone won't be able to hear us, all right? And we'll do a big cheer at the end.
Why are you guys out marching today? Because uh, we just like really want to see the government take some action and just kind of like get off their butts and actually listen to us instead of just sitting around and saying like, oh no, like you're young and stupid, like you don't know anything. Uh, it'd be really nice to have them actually listen because we are like the future generations. Like in 20 years times, like we're going to be the ones in charge and like they're not going to be, they're not going to be around to clean up the mess that they've made. Like we are, we're going to have to clean up their mess. There's a lot of people here today, and a lot of people here seem really angry. Are you angry about what's going on? Um, yeah, definitely, because, like, I've, the government just, they don't, like, they're not listening, and it's really angering because, like, they know what the problem is, and they have the power to, fish, to fix the problem, but they're just not doing anything about it. So, like, yeah, it is, it makes me really, really angry. And what do you want the government to do? Just like, I guess, obviously stopping Adani would be the first thing to do. Just, like, listening to us, as I said, is, like, really important. Because, as I said, like, we're the ones that are going to be left to clean up their mess. It's not going to be, like, they're not going to still be around when we're in the government. Like, we are going to be the future of the government. So, like, yeah. Right on. Thanks very much. <laughs> Sorry, what is, what is your name and what do you do? I'm Sherry Mayo. I'm a scientist. I'm also a member of the CSIRO Staff Association. There's lots of different unions out here supporting the school students today. Why is it so important for unionists and indeed scientists to come out and support the children? Well, our union was out four years ago fighting to save climate science inside CSIRO, which is you know, a danger of being completely cut. Um, this is an evidence-based thing, you know, we're evidence-based people and we've got to do something about the climate and it's for our kids' future as well. You know, I've got kids, they'll have kids one day and we want a positive future for them. And looking around all the different unions today, there's blue-collar unions, white-collar unions, education unions, the whole thing. Um, is this an issue that unions need to take more seriously? Well, I think they already take it pretty seriously. Um, it, yeah, it is a real mix of people. I actually noticed that with the school kids as well, because I came along a whole train line, and we had kids from private schools, kids from public schools, kids in uniform, kids in not in uniform, and it was great to see how broad the cross-section of people was. Thanks very much. Um, my name is Molly Baker, and I'm here to just join in the rally. And what about you? Uh, my name's Amy McCracken. I'm here to fight for my future. And... What do you, how do you feel right now in the middle of all of these students? What does it make you feel? I just feel overwhelmed. It's absolutely amazing. Yeah, I agree. It's really incredible that so many people have came out today and I'm really lucky to be a part of this. So lots of people have been saying, why do it? Why march? It's not going to do anything. Do you, what do you say to those people? Just to show what, like, how powerful we are when we all come together and what we can accomplish. Yeah, I think it's really important to not give up hope, even though it seems a bit hopeless. I think it's really important that everyone comes out tonight and shows their support um, to save our planet. And if you could give one clear message to Scott Morrison and all the other politicians up in Canberra, what would it be? Uh, listen to your, your young people and actually stand up and do something about climate right now. Because if, if he avoids like the worry of climate change, it's just not going to end well. He just needs to listen. Yeah. Thanks very much. Uh, 
with Josh Cullinan from the Retail and Fast Food Workers Union. Uh, Josh, are your, is your union supporting the strike today? Uh, absolutely. We're big supporters of direct action and this has got to be one of the best ways for young, young people, including young workers, to take direct action to protect our environment and to take action on climate change. It's fantastic. And what do you think it says about the future of Australian activism to see so many school students out here today? Oh, mate, I get tingles. It's just absolutely fantastic. It's great that my kids are here, but it's great that so many others right across Australia and right across the world are getting a first-hand experience of what direct action looks like. It's not just the chance, it's the actual taking that action to step out of school and say something's more important than this, and they're absolutely right. Thanks, Josh. Can you tell me what your sign says? It says, no action, no future. And what does that mean to you? Why are you out here today? Because I want a future on this planet. And there's lots of people here, there's lots of people feeling a lot of different emotions. How do you feel that you have to come out on the street like this? I'm furious that we have to do this. We should be in school. And if you could send a message, so lots of people are listening right now while you're on the streets. What's your message to the government, to all the people out there that are watching from the sidelines? Well, there you go. And it was a huge crowd. Yes, it, it sounded, was. <laughs> sounded like it. <laughs> yeah, it was. Um, and, uh, he, yeah, it was, uh, it was nice to get uh, some voices from the crowd finding mm. out what it was that they were, why they were there. Yeah. And so we thank uh, Matt Kunkel for mm. doing that, collecting that material. Uh, we're going to go from uh, the crowds in the streets to the crowds in the pubs. Uh, mm-hmm. Last um, on March the seventh, there was uh, feminism in the pub, and which is becoming an annual event for RAW, which is women's rights at work. That's a very hard thing to say. My lips in uh, the morning. Women's rights at work. And RAW. This, did you say that's an annual thing? Yeah, no, I, I yeah, thought yeah. it was uh, more frequent than that. No, oh, well, no, there are things like raw yeah. chats and okay. stuff like that. No, yeah. no, it's, uh, but it, it's part of uh, International Women's Day, oh, which yeah. they're yep. making into International Women's Week. Yes. <laughs> All the W's. Yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, a Julie, who apparently is going to start coming on board at Solidarity Breakfast, which is great, more friends, great. But she she went down to Feminism in the Pub and she had a chat with Laura Watson, who is the Indigenous officer at the ACTU. It's a really great. quite fascinating chat. Yeah. All right, well, um, here at Radio Free CR with Lynn. Lara. Yeah, Lara. <laughs> yeah. So, Lara, thanks for taking the time to talk to us today. Why did you want to come here tonight? I wanted to come tonight because it is International Women's Day tomorrow. Um, and I, I just lo- love reveling in the activism of women. Like, Australia has some mighty women activists, and I thought it was. I was quite humbled, actually, by the invite to be able to speak at a women's function. Yeah, yeah I could see you, you got very emotional about some of the things, some of the topics that are being talked about. Can you tell us, um, for people who don't know, about the CD, CDP? 
So CDP is the Community Development Program and it's a work for the doll program that this current federal government rolls out in remote communities. So it is only in remote Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities. Um, it's extremely punitive and we believe it is quite racist because of where it's being based and where it's being rolled out. And basically, um, it's Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. They, in, in most circumstances, are in w what we consider wage jobs. So they're doing positions such as council work, shop assistance, cleaning. Like These are jobs that we consider full-time, part-time employment with wages and conditions. And they're doing that for the equivalent of a new start payment. Um, so it is absolutely slave labour. They have no access to any industrial tools such as Fair Work Australia or trade unions because they actually come under the Social Security Act. So they're not even considered workers in the country. Yeah. Um, they don't have penalty rates. They don't have access to occupational health and safety. Um, they don't get superannuation. So it is modern day slavery um, and definitely stolen wages. Yeah, when I was working in the, um, in the Alice for six months and I was a speech therapist up there, I was actually shocked isn't the word for what I saw going on there with the Aboriginal community having to line up, being given little cards, mm. they couldn't even go to where they wanted to buy stuff, having to line up to get to buy their own stuff, they weren't allowed to even to, to, to buy alcohol. Everybody else could buy it, and it was it was so humiliating. I was deeply shocked yeah. and upset, and I, I just didn't know. I thought, how can this? How can this happen? Yeah. This is only for the Aboriginal community. It's not for the white community. There, I, I just didn't understand how it was going on. Yeah. Um, Alice is quite a racist place. I mean, it's the only place in the country that I've gone to that they've actually got police stationed at every, you know, bottle And if you are Aboriginal, you get pulled up and you've got to show ID and you've got to have a permit um, to buy alcohol. And, you know, that that's thanks to John Howard when he implemented the Northern Territory intervention and we saw the rollout of the basic card. So we do have people on CDP that are still on the basic card as well and under that income management. And in Western Australia and South Australia on the Ingenue card, so the um, welfare management. So basically, um, if you're on CDP around... Five dollars, uh, like $5 an hour is put, equivalent to, sorry, equivalent to $5 an hour is put into your bank account and the rest is actually put onto um, income management. So that would be the basic card or the Inju card. So they're visa cards. Um, and what we've found, particularly with that, is then not accepted in a lot of places. So if people want to go to the local um, Vinnie store to buy some clothing, 
they can't do that. So they've got to buy clothing brand new from um, a big supermarket that actually has the ability to accept basic card. Same with um, groceries. So they can't shop around with bargains. I mean, that's something that I need to do to be able to survive day to day with the way wages are and, you know, cost of living and the way things go. But they don't have that capacity at all. It's basically one shop you've got to go to. Um, And we've heard some horror stories in Alice Springs as well, uh, where taxi drivers um, will tell people on the basic card, go in and buy $200 worth of groceries and I'll give you 70 bucks. So there's a lot of exploitation happening around that income management as well. So, you know, in our views, income management should actually be voluntary. It shouldn't be compulsory or people forced into the program. And People forget that that was implemented um, in remote communities through the Northern Territory intervention and now government is rolling that out mainstream and you've got like single mothers that are being put onto it and we know our communities are always the guinea pigs for trials like this. So if we don't get outraged publicly on something that is happening in a remote community, guaranteed it'll be knocking on your door within years. Absolutely, because I remember talking to people in um, Bellingen, New South Wales, and also in Melbourne, and nobody knew about uh, that this was happening. They were just shocked that this was happening. Australians in their own community, they didn't know it. Yeah, absolutely. Like, people don't think... You know, they just think, oh, it's remote communities, doesn't affect me, no matter. But they don't actually realise that it is actually next door. So, you know, you might have a mother that is quite capable, she's a single mother, she's looking after her kids and she has a bad month. She might lose her job, she might have to look for other work and Centrelink might turn around and say, well, you can't manage your money, you are asking for aid or assistance, therefore we will manage your money for you. Um, yeah. And the same with CDP, what, what we see is, you know, this is quite um, a racist and punitive program. And then the government implemented another program that was extremely similar to CDP. If you're on Centrelink and you've had um, any issues with drugs or alcohol, you're getting put onto this program, which is basically based on CDP. So you've got to do certain things to be able to get payment so work for the dole or you know if and if you don't do it you get breached for eight weeks and get no money coming in so we just need this people to actually understand what is implemented or what is trialed in remote communities if there is no outrage publicly then it will be on your doorstep and people have got to understand too in mainstream media when there's reports around remote communities, media always portrays the negative. So you're not actually getting the facts about what is happening in these communities. Yeah, uh, Absolutely. I'm just trying to think about the link between, what, what do you think the link is between the way that the government is treating Aboriginal people and, and First Nation people and the way that they're treating women? Well, I think this government, um, any minority group has been under attack since their term of government, whether it's been Abbott, Turnbull or Morrison. It just seems to be this roller coaster ride um, and this big shield up to protect the big end of town and businesses. Um, 
you know, whether you're a woman, you're a migrant worker, you're an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander, or, you know, you have a look at the way employment is going now with the high casualisation and the labour, yeah, the labour contracts. Uh, you look at these delivery, food delivery services, you know, with your Ubers and, you know, you've got these young kids and they're working for less than $4 an hour. It is ridiculous. When did it become acceptable in this country to be a working poor person? Once upon a time, a job in Australia was enough money to put a roof over your head pay the bills, food on the table and send your kids to school. Whereas people today are working three and four jobs just to keep a roof over their head, let alone feed them, let alone send kids to school. I'm just thinking about strike action as well. I mean, it's it's difficult to do strike action when you haven't got a job to strike against because it's all contracts now. So I'm just thinking, what can we do practically um, in your union as well? What can we do to help this situation? Um, You know, strikes are a very scary thing um, to workers who haven't been exposed to the union movement um, or are just new to activism with the way that Australian laws are set up. So you go on a strike, you're very much looking at the possibility of being fined thousands of dollars for industrial or for illegal industrial action. Um, So I can understand where workers might be a little bit fearful at the terminology of a strike. Um, But there's certainly the capacity to be able to rally nationally, like to work collectively on changing the rules with the system that is very much broken and be able to voice your issues in that space through that activity. Um, we, We absolutely need to change the rules First, so that people have the right to strike. You know, strike action has always been the last resort. Like, we've always gone through this process with an employer and if you come to heads and he's still just not coming to the table, well, that's when you go out on strike. You know, it's usually the last action. Um, So if people are talking strike, you know it is that bad. It is that bad that this is all people can think We have to strike because there is no other option left. So we need to actually change the rules. The rules are broken. You know, people are being exploited here in Australia around work. People are being exploited when they're getting Centrelink payments. I mean, you know, you've got a majority of Australians have the capacity to be able to join together and fight this government. Like, we have a lot of responsibility on our shoulders coming into this federal election because we need to get rid of this government so that we can actually work with a government that is going to change the rules. But afterwards, we still need to keep up the pressure and keep up the fight to ensure the rules are changed and to ensure that it spreads the wealth. Thank you, Laura. Is there anything else as a final message that you'd like to give to 3CR listeners? I'll definitely let your um, listeners know if they haven't signed up for Change the Rules to definitely get out there. You know, you might not be a union member, you might not be working, you might be a retired person that's just looking to do something for change. You are welcome with Change the Rules. It's about coming together in solidarity and changing government. Thank you. Flowers, a lion tamer, I join in all your days. Travel round 
share the growing concern about racism, fascism and the move to the extreme right, come along to our forum on a Bill of Rights for Australia on Sunday the 17th of March at the Unitarian Church, 110 Gray Street, East Melbourne, commencing at 11am. Speakers include Professor Gillian Triggs, Professor Rob Watts, Julian Burnside QC and the Human Rights Law Centre. RSVP to admin at melbourneunitarian.org.au Our democratic rights are under threat. If you care, be there. The Melbourne Unitarian Peace Memorial Church is a 3CR supporter. This is Iri Lecker. You're here on 3CR 855 AM Community Radio. Also streaming on 3cr.org.au. Free West Papua, Papua Merdeka gets up one talks. If you share the growing concern about racism, fascism and the move to the extreme right, come along to our forum on a Bill of Rights for Australia on Sunday the 17th of March at the Unitarian Church, 110 Gray Street, East Melbourne, commencing at 11am. Speakers include Professor Gillian Triggs, Professor Rob Watts, Julian Burnside QC and the Human Rights Law Centre. RSVP to admin 
at melbourneunitarian.org.au. Our democratic rights are under threat. If you care, be there. The Melbourne Unitarian Peace Memorial Church is a 3CR supporter. That's right. And we were hoping to bring you somebody from uh, the Fair Go for Pensioners who was particularly interested in telling us about the Bill of Rights uh, event that's going to be on at the Unitarian Church. I'm going to go along. I'm going to do some recording. I might even get a chance to ask the question that everybody who has spoken to me about it uh, regarding um, why... uh, Julian Burnside's decided to run for parliament. Yeah. Oh, and, and why the Greens? <laughs> and why the Greens? It's, it's why not quite independent? Yeah. Yeah, that's quite fascinating, mm. isn't it? Uh, well, he has been at some of the launches yes. um, and uh, all the rest of it. And I guess also because uh, many of the issues that he's been speaking about, which is mm. about refugees yes. in particular and justice, uh, the uh, connection between the way refugees are being treated and lack of justice, which is his business, Uh, he would see it that way, being Mm. a professional lawman. Um, Yeah, so he obviously believes that the uh, Greens uh, platform in that respect is uh, uh, very close to his own. I'd be interested in uh, (laughs) being a fly on the wall as like when, who convinced him to do that? You know, like (laughs) there must have been some key people that influenced him. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. Um, I've done several interviews with Julian Burnside and uh, what, uh, most recently it was around uh, a film which uh, took mm. him around the world uh, at two particular hotspots uh, like uh, uh, Greece yeah. where there, uh, and um, the wall in yes. uh, America and stuff yeah. like that. He was persuaded, he said to me, he was persuaded to actually do that particular film because yeah. he's the talking head, effectively. Yes, he's a bit yeah. like Attenborough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's funny too because he wears his suit, you know. In all these spaces. In all these spaces, yeah. which is kind of, you know, it's a bit like those uh, travel pictures that people have yeah. of um, uh, of inanimate objects on top yes. of mountains and stuff like yeah, that. But yeah, it's like he looks totally out of place. Yeah, yeah. But, but, it, but it was actually really illuminating because he's a very clear-sighted sort of fellow and he's also mm. quite um, emotional too, connected. Yeah. Mm. But what was interesting about that was him saying uh, that he doesn't like to travel he doesn't oh. like he yeah he doesn't like to travel you know like when people say oh I'm going to go around the world and do this stuff and I'm making a movie yeah. you know people get all excited yeah. and they think it's really glamorous and stuff and he <laughs> said oh no you know I don't like doing this yeah. sort of thing uh, so uh, for him to and and he was persuaded that it was a worthy thing to yeah. do yeah and no doubt it was uh, mind expanding for himself mm. because at the end of that film he's actually beside that wall and he's actually quite um, uh, as emotional as a person of his nature yeah. is in public about the the injustice yeah. of this, this symbol of injustice. It's an actual symbol of injustice. Yes. Uh, but anyway, uh, so yeah, it will be interesting because being a politician is not quite the same no. thing as uh, appearing in court or preparing briefs. Yeah, or standing up as an advocate, like, yeah. Yeah, with a clear mind. person. Yeah, mm. uh, but you know, uh, they. I remember years ago someone saying to me that the reason for, and this was an older person, and I was a young person. They were saying, 
oh, the reason for why politics has become so moribund is because uh, many of the people who are in there do not have legal backgrounds. Oh. And I, I did think that that was a bit, uh, you know, overstepping the mark. But maybe maybe we've got to a point where... Um, Too many legal backgrounds now. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, a whole no. lot of these, you know, well, what's Morrison? Morrison's a publicist. Yeah. I but guess. then again, so yeah. was yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't know if he was a particularly successful publicist. <laughs> he was the one that was responsible for the um, uh, the bloody come to Australia. Oh, yeah, that's yeah. stupid ad. That's stupid yeah. ad. <laughs> so maybe you know not that successful. But anyway, getting back to the real issue is that tomorrow is Bill of Rights, a discussion about Bill of Rights, and yes, they've got some big guns. They've got. Um, yeah. Julian Triggs and um, Julian Burnside, but also the professor from, um, I can't remember, Watts, Dr. Watts, I think his yep. name is. He's really good. I've heard him speak before and uh, he's a really impressive chap, mm. I have to say. Very clear-minded and uh, yeah. really interesting. There I was wonder a- who will be there from the Human Rights Law Centre. Yes, that's yeah. right, and their representative as well. Mm. Yeah. So a very interesting day. It's a big it's a big event for them to have organized. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Yeah, I'm pretty impressed. Uh yeah, me too when I heard the names, but I I also think like sometimes uh how accessible these kind of events like if if all the people that are speaking will be speaking a lot of jargon law kind of jargon oh, and, i don't think they will that. no? that's because uh, what i've discovered i've been to several events at the unitarian church and mm. one of the things that the they do so beautifully is they put politics into a plain dress yeah and that is uh they are to be congratulated mm. and uh so what i'm more interested in is seeing these people in a environment that is uh, basically r- relaxing and human, yeah, humanising, yeah, yeah, and mm. humanising. That mm. is a much more interesting thing. Uh, there's nothing in between the yeah. people. There's no front, effectively, except yeah. for basic human uh, politeness and uh, respect. Yeah. Right. Uh, so that's really interesting. And the other um, very respectful people, and. Uh, I noticed that in the last speech that I heard uh, played on, because we've got a program, of course, on 3CR, which is the Unitarian Church's mm-hmm. program, which is on later in today, and they often have speakers because they're about, spe- uh, you know, in their big brains. They like to feed <laughs> their brains. Yeah. And um, that I listened to the speech that Dr. Watts gave and one of the things he said was this is one of the last places where we can talk about real justice. Yeah, true. Which is really fascinating. So mm. it's on at 11 o'clock, Bill of Rights. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, and I actually think that Bill of Rights is probably overdue. Yes. Mm-mm. Anyway, moving right along, this <laughs> is the week that was. A weak solidarity, Briggy team listener, when great news, the resurrection of one of our favourites, and it's not even Easter yet, resurrection, after last week we left that coalition great thinker Craig Killy the planet attacking those who opposed new coal-fired power stations, even swallowing his pride given he doesn't believe there is such a thing as climate change. How can we address climate change if we're not allowed to change the climate? 
Which brings us to the revival, the resurrection of one of our favourites, yes, former Hayseed and Sheepshit Party Supremo, Barnacle, who reinforced his commitment to market forces to the market, to government having no role in business, by demanding the government finance a new coal-fired power station or two in Her Most Gracious Majesty's land. How can we be a major exporter of beautiful coal but not use it ourselves? He scoffed, showing how stupid other people are. Conversely, Barnacle, we exposed how stupid we are. What if we didn't export it and didn't use it? Huh? Barnacle obviously considered the question so irrelevant he didn't think it worth expanding on that answer. Ah, put us in our place. Barnacle did say he had been elected Deputy Big Supremo at the last election, which we know because we all rushed down to the polling booth thinking, I want to elect Barnacle as Deputy Big Supremo. And the current hayseed and cheap shit Supremo, whose name no one can remember, talked about give and take in marriage, and an upset Barnacle said he hoped he wasn't having a go at him, and his comment was a faux pas. Is that... F-A-U-X-P-A or F-O-E-P-A. Uh? Haven't we missed him? On Giant Minds, headline the other morning, Kim plays Trump for a fool over weapons. And I thought, well, it's hardly news. It's, it's not much of a challenge. It's right up there in barnacle territory. But the bloke whose name no one can remember asked whether there was a threat to his leadership, said there was not. Would there be a challenge after the election? No. And what's your relationship like with Barnacle? Good. Oh, well, as good as any relationship you can have with a raving moron. Barnacle and the hayseed and sheepshit lot who know it will help market forces for the public purse to fund more coal-fired power, beautiful, beautiful coal, on behalf of the super-efficient, lean, mean private sector, and knowledgeable people like former big supremo tiny a bit more for the bosses are adults who know about these things, which is why we're all so upset that these brainwashed little schoolchildren should take to the streets over climate change crap when their places in the classroom not being brainwashed because climate change crap is grown-ups business. Indeed, Lord Rupert of Wapping, through his Wapping sin, attacked this treacherous threat to democracy, the Youth Coalition on Climate Change, for brainwashing dear little school children by helping them organise these huge rallies. And we have to wonder who in turn brainwashed the youth in the Youth Coalition, because these people are not adults like Barnacle and Tiny and the responsible men in suits who generate wealth and jobs and a bit of CO2 through the fossil resource great corporations and can't think adult thoughts for themselves. So they have this juvenile idea the responsible boardrooms are destroying the planet they are inheriting. will have to live on or attempt to live on long after the men in suits and their parliamentary puppets have departed. And the education supremo Dan Teacham said they were, they were missing out on an important day at school anti-bullying day and did his best to bully them into not taking action over climate change crap part of action by brainwashed dear little children all over the world and top marks to Siena College for one which has said students who attended the rally will have their VCE assessments marked as a fail a non-fail 
Monday we successfully negotiated Labor Day without the most remote reference to Labor Day. Uh, sorry, Moomba. Tuesday's Lord Rupert Wapping Sid summed up the fun, fun, fun beautifully. Trees, toadstools and butterflies cruised alongside mad scientists, dragons and a giant llama. Oh, what fun. Uh, but, but what about evil union floats, workers celebrating? There is no place for politics in Moomba. Uh, but it is Labor Day. Moomba. How refreshing to enjoy the bread and circuses, fun, fun, fun of trees, toadstools and butterflies cruising alongside mad scientists, dragons and a giant llama when Melbourne used to have to suffer the agitprop of giant union floats and giant union banners taking over the streets. Thank goodness Moomba came to the rescue and banned anything remotely political from Labor Day. Oh, sorry, sorry, Moomba. People don't want that sort of thing when they're out to enjoy themselves. Bringing us, sadly, we have to introduce politics into this. Apologies, listener, apologies. Bringing us to the biggest threat to the greatest little economic order of them all to raise its ugly head this week. Wages. We pointed out last week caring employers who wish for nothing more than they could pay their lazy, avaricious workers a little more, a little, little more, but can't because the greatest little economic order of them all simply can't afford a living wage, so we have no choice but to persevere with our dying wage. Yes, the bloody ACTU still says it wants a living wage and has applied for this outrageous increase in the lowest of low-paid minimum wage. And the Socialist Party hasn't quite gone that far. Distance itself from the ACTU, the true blue Aussie capitalist review put it, but does want a substantial increase, neither of which the economy can afford it anyway. It doesn't have to afford it because caring employers pointed out the lowest of low paid are more likely to be living in the top 20% of rich households than in the bottom 20% of non-rich households. And we have to believe their figures drawn up by an academic called Wooden Head. The daughters and sons of the rich earning a bit on the side and the level of low, low pay doesn't matter to them. They just want to enjoy the fun, fun, fun of working in lowest of low paid jobs. And the Chamber of Profits Supremo Jennifer Waste Cost of Workers said that showed an increase in the way Wages they wish they could increase is absolutely unnecessary, but then said, and this is where the wisdom of these people confuses my simple mind, said the lowest of low paid were in rich households, but then said an increase in the lowest of low paid wage would force the poor out of work, cost jobs and worsen poverty. If she wasn't such a great fighter for a better society, I'd think there was some sort of contradiction in all that. But she must be right, because all the people who met a chorus with Jennifer that a wage increase would cost jobs and force businesses out of business. We have to keep wondering why the caring employers bother, don't we?
Any doubt that there may be the odd flaw in the caring employers and therefore the government's case was erased when that lifelong champion of working people, former ACTU Supremo Little Billy Kilty, the unions, supported the caring employers and said a wage rise would cost jobs and put business out of business. And we all know Little Billy has done so much for lazy, avaricious workers through inventive ideas like wage freezes, the public purse picking up the caring employers' responsibilities, forbidding progressive union officials from making wage and condition claims, indeed creating a climate in which evil unions were forced to trade off hard-won wages and conditions for a bit of trickle-down leading to unions becoming irrelevant and their memberships collapsing. Such progressive policies. So he would never do anything to hurt working people. And his grand ideas are being adopted as caring employers tell us because the lowest of low-paid live in rich households, incomes for the odd poor who may live in our great society can be increased through the tax system and government support. Little Billy's grand accord idea that brought us the priceless benefits of neoliberal economics. Why should caring employers have to meet wage increases when there's the public purse that can prove it has some sort of role in the economy? The taxes of the lowest of low paid compensating the lowest of low paid. Win-win. Despite the Socialist Party distancing itself, quote, the ACTU will doubtless urge workers to vote socialist and hope for the best. Although we can be pretty certain Sally McManus would have little Billy turning in his... Oh, no, no, he's still alive. A former Greens MP quit the party alleging a toxic culture, populism, egotism and narcissism and both the caring business class party and the socialist party couldn't believe such baseness, such human baseness could infiltrate a political party speaking in rare unanimity, scuttle them and little Billy on behalf of the united, undivided, altruistic, humble, devoted to others, bearing their non-egos party said they couldn't believe a political party that takes parliamentary democracy seriously could ever descend into a toxic culture driven by populism, egotism and narcissism. Toxic culture, populism, egotism, doesn't this show how far the Greens have descended, they chorused, and narcissism, how depraved. Uh, By the way, scuttle them, your bald patch is getting bigger. It is not. How dare you? But look, it's yours that's getting bigger. It is not. It is not. Well, we'll leave them there, but parliamentary democratic parties, toxic culture, populism, ego, narcissism, who'd have thought? Finally, former big supremo Malcolm Tunnabull has admitted he has had a back operation, presumably under the knife, to get the knife out. Appropriate on the Ides of March. Malcolm and Big Julie, A2 scuttle them. Good morning. Yeah, only only Kevin would remember that it's the Ides of March. <laughs> um, we're coming up uh, to uh, the next uh, item that we've got on Solidarity Breakfast. You're listening to Solidarity Breakfast on 3CR. We've had a rel- relatively busy morning. We've uh, been to climate uh, cha- action yes. rallies. We've... Uh, went to the feminism in the pub. Uh, now we're going to go to Venezuela. Now this, there's a story to this. Um, someone, uh, one of the listeners, uh, asked us to uh, do another report about what's going on, an update on Venezuela. Yeah. 
It was a good idea. He gave me a name. I rang the person up because I did actually know this person. I've interviewed them before, Fred uh, Fuentes. And it turned out it was 4am in Venezuela, because that Caracas, because that's where he was. Anyway, I then made a, a plan with him that I'd ring him up in another five hours. And that's exactly what I did. So this is uh, Fred giving us an update about uh, his experiences in Venezuela at the moment. The sound quality is not so good, because uh, he's a bit, bit of a quiet speaker, but also I'm not entirely sure the line's that good either. Mm. So uh, here we go. Let's hear what Fred's got to say about... Uh, and this was from last uh, Tuesday night. Oh, Wednesday morning. It was Wednesday morning. It was How my- long have you been there in Venezuela? Uh, we arrived probably just over a week ago. Um, there's a group of three of us here at the moment um, that have just sort of been travelling around the country just getting a their sense of really what's going on here in Venezuela, given it's so hard to get better accurate information uh, from the normal mainstream media. So uh, what's been your impression? Well, what we've been able to gauge really from our visits, and that includes apart from obviously uh, here in the capital and I guess the meeting up with uh, popular organisations, social organisations, and talking to people on the streets. We've also been able to travel out to uh, a couple of different sort of uh, states, including Apure, which is out in the border, which is borders with Colombia, which of course is over the last month or so, last couple of weeks, been a bit of a flash point uh, the events of February 23 when there was an attempt to uh, get the called humanitarian aid into Venezuela via the Colombia-Venezuelan border and you know, also to the, to the state of Barinas and they've all seen very much as a people going through a lot of hardship, very difficult situation for everyone uh, when we you know, see the, 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 the real difficulty of how to struggle day to day to be able to obtain the food that once was you know, quite common uh, for, for were able to easily obtain the their salaries, which have been salaries that have been gobbled up by the hyperinflation, but of course we've seen us in the last few days uh, the big problems that have been caused as a result of the electricity blackouts, which have gone beyond just affecting obviously the electricity network in the country, but also affected access to water, uh, affected telecommunications and telephone internet. Um, but yet, despite despite all this, you know, what undoubtedly in any other country would have already have led to, to mass protests, if not a an overthrow of the president, what we've seen and what we've heard from people saying is that they understand that you know, this very difficult situation is due to a complex number of factors and what they try to do is actually work together to get out of this situation, to, to work together to see how they can avoid uh, any kind of sort of uh, anti-democratic forces, any kind of foreign forces using this sort of service and consent to provoke some kind of uh, crisis in the country. So we've seen communities banding together to see how they can get water to those that most need it, uh, you know, how, how they can help get communication uh, re-established, uh, helping each other with electricity generators, uh, and, and really trying to see how they can, in this immediate sense, obviously overcome the shortages of the, the electricity, which are probably slowly coming back online, but is yet back completely online around the country. And what we understand, uh, at least in Caracas, uh, the water should be you know, running again, if not today, by tomorrow. So it's sort of been a you know, good overview of, sort of what we've been out of. You know, we've been talking to people who really don't understand, I guess, that part of Venezuela, but they just never really covered in the media, and that is how much what the last 20 years of 
close to the FF which is a charters in, in the Nicholas Duro government. Really meet the people and why they don't want to why they want to hold on to the legacy, why they want to hold on to that at all costs. You know, whether it be it meets for the first time they were able to go to the university and it meant for the first time they were actually able to access a, a decent job, uh, whether it meant that for the first time they were able to access doctors, um, you know, and also the, the broader, I suppose, uh, self-identification that has come through this whole period, this understanding of Venezuela uh, in history, Venezuela as the world, um, and so, you know, real sense of pride in, in where they are in the context of understanding the difficulties that they're having to overcome on a day-to-day basis. Why, why did the electricity get cut? What happened? Well, I suppose it depends on who you ask. Uh, the opposition say that it's basically due to uh, negligence on the part of the government uh, that the, the network has been run down and the proper investment hasn't been put into the system. Uh, the government has said that actually what has occurred uh, is a series of acts sabotage uh, and also cyber hacking uh, that has gotten into the system and it's why what we see today is pretty much unprecedented why they've seen issues with the electricity system before. I was never seen anything like in the last few days. It was just, it was just a complete shutdown and even location when the, when it is re-established a, an immediate shutdown again. Um, I think the truth lies that both of, both of those are the B-realm of the both and what is it. I think there's no doubt uh, in the large scale, what we've seen all occurred, given the numerous incidences of, uh, that have come out of direct sabotage of certain backup generators, um, of what we saw with the Guri Dam, where, where you know, it went down to a complete shutdown, which is something that's just completely abnormal uh, for, for what should have occurred there. I think there's no doubt that what we've seen is, is a targeted uh, campaign of sabotage uh, to try to bring this thing down the electricity system and hope to provoke further and hope to provoke uh, a protest against the government. I think it's an attack that's been helped by the fact that really the Venezuelan government has been unable to maintain the level of investment required on the electricity system in a boom in actual people being able to access electricity. And this is a lot of the times it's what's missing in the, in the media narrative about what's happening in Venezuela. But far from being this fantastical rich, island, rich country that need to talk about the reality that large size of the Venezuelan population have no access to electricity other for the Chavez government. We saw over the last few years this massive expansion, mostly of actually connecting households, not just in the capital cities, but all the way into the countryside into the electricity grid, and also done at a, at a, at a super, super cheap rate, being arguably too cheap a rate, where literally the, the invoice sent out to the households costs more than what the household have been charged. Uh, for, for, their, for their electricity, so that's made, made a very difficult situation for the government to be maintain the kind of level of investment that the electrical sector would have required. And so I think it made it, made it easier, I, I suppose, in, in some ways for, 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 for this kind of a cut to, to be able to occur. I think that obviously the, the government, government will have to deal with, but it's also, as I've mentioned before, something that the people have already dealt with, because it's not the first time there has been much shorter electricity, but also for, for many communities, particularly in the countryside where we were, you know, life for a long time, no electricity, had no running water, um, and so you know, these are communities all much more uh, ready to be able to know how to react to these situations as opposed to in the larger cities where, where this is a bit more unique. Yeah, it's, um, you know, 
the first time I've read in the local papers here the intimation that this is a failed coup. Well, yeah. I, yeah, I, I think well, I think definitely. Well, let, let's put this in, in a couple of contexts. I think there's no doubt that the recent events essentially triggered from March 23, when Juan Guaido, uh, the leader of the National Assembly, the president of the National Assembly, uh, self-proclaimed himself as the interim president of Venezuela, and the subsequent events that definitely be uh, seen as an attempt. I think they also need to be seen in really what has been a 20-year uh, slow-motion attempt at coup. And at certain points, it's peaked with actual actual direct attempts to overthrow the president. You saw that in 2002 with the military coup against Chavez. We saw it at the end of 2002 with the shutdown of the oil industry. We saw it again in 2017 with the same three months of violent protests to get rid of Maduro. This is really just the, the latest of those two attempts. I think that those that are running the show, that are really pushing for this, the end of the uh, Maduro government, which is not just uh, opposition here in Venezuela, or certainly in this case, the more right-wing elements of the opposition, which is what I'm glad to represent, but also down down Washington, the Trump administration, has had a huge role in what is occurring here. I think they felt that a lot of this would occur much quickly, and they felt that they had the support in the military. In fact, media reports indicate uh, that Juan Guaido had, and to Mike Pence, that he thought that, you know, by February 23, when there was a military stunt on the border with Colombia, that half of the military would come to his side, and obviously Washington was quite disappointed when, when none of that came, came to fruition. So I think it could be argued that this initial coup has failed, but I think, firstly, it can't be forgotten that its opposition years has never stopped trying to overthrow uh, the, the Bolivarian government that Chavez and Maduro. And secondly, I think there's still, uh, I think, many more steps to come in, in, in what the opposition has planned. So we've seen now, you know, the, the electricity shut, um, shut down, but obviously the government is still even trying to, trying to re-establish. So I've got no doubt that they've got further plans. But the government is unsure yet. We know that we'll go either openly seeing, you know, calling on public sector workers to go on strike to see if they can shut down the, 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 the public sector. Um, that may be one option. I think that'll be a limited option uh, for, for Guaido. We may see increased international pressure, and in fact already the US is talking about even tightening further uh, the sanctions on Venezuela and effect to just totally economically strangle uh, the economy. So I think, yes, the, the, most, the most immediate sense we can say so, because I think they, by their timeline, they thought they would already be uh, in power, but I think there's still a long way to go until this sort of uh, is, 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 is ultimately resolved one way or the other. And the issue of resources is one thing, uh, but in uh, on another level, if uh, Venezuela or any state was able to thrive and be an alternative to what appears to be a, a rather failing capitalist system, is this the motivation of, for America's decision to be so gung-ho, or is it because Trump wants attention away from himself. What, I mean, Venezuela is uh, just one of the countries that they're pushing over in South America? Yeah, I think, I think there's a number of factors driving Washington policy towards Venezuela. It's, it's hard to you know, say, well, which one is the overriding one, or, or is it a mixture of all of them? Or, or is it also a reflection that different elements 
of the Trump administration have different visions of where to go, but all of them coincide on removing the Maduro regime. Thing one, which is of course arguably the most obvious one, is the huge amount of natural resources, in particular oil. Venezuela has in so such a close uh, proximity to the United States. A number of U.S. Um, oil refineries are large, are basically in constructed, fueled by Venezuelan oil. So it's a very important economic interest there. I think secondly, there's, there's a very important political uh, motivation for, for or, or even one might argue sort of an ideological motivation uh, for, for why the administration of Venezuela, and that is really to try and send a message uh, to, to the rest of the continent and maybe to the rest of the world that, that if Venezuela proves if you attempt to go down any other road except the road of free market capitalism, you end up as a basket case like, like Venezuela. That's why we see the intense propaganda campaign. A campaign actually built on lies. Um, as I said in my first initial you know, response, of course there are many serious problems that the Venezuelan people are having to deal with. They're a result of a number of conflicts of which the media never talk about, for example, the impact of the sanctions that have been having for years now in Venezuela, essentially blocking the ability of the government to import basic goods, food and medicine. Uh, none of that's reported, and instead it's just presented as somehow, no, for no particularly known reason except for supposed socialism, um, that Venezuela's economy is in crisis. So we see that when Trump uh, made his speech a couple of weeks ago in Miami, largely now, a community of you know expats from Cuba and Venezuela. You know, this is, this is about even socialism. Socialism is out everywhere, and we've got to make sure that it's out as well. And so I think there's that aspect. The other, the other, other elements of the Trump administration have made it also clear that Venezuela is just springboard uh, for heating up some of the other countries that continue to defy uh, you know, U.S. U.S. foreign uh, policy in the region. So they refer to Nicaragua, and of course Cuba, who put uses happening on the door of the, of the U.S. is the constant reminder of how they failed. So I think, I think there's, a, there's a mixture of all those elements. There's a mixture of economic interests, ideological interests, but political interests in, in the region of wanting to be established um, U.S. hegemony in the region after a period of two decades. And a lot of that had started to dwindle as we saw the emergence of major regional implications and concretizing itself in bodies such as the Union of South American Nations, the community of Latin American, Latin American European states, the body that has brought together a region to the exclusion uh, of the US and, and Canada. And so we were listening to Fred Fuentes, who, who was in uh, Venezuela, uh, and he's given us an update of uh, what's been going on. And now we're going to have a yarn with uh, Debbie Brennan. And now Debbie's from the uh, Melbourne Radical Women and Calf. That's uh, 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 and uh, g'day, Debbie. How are you? Uh, good day. And um, I'm actually with Radical Women and um, a united front called Push, organising and building. Uh, organizing and educating to build a united front. Cool, and and this is this is about uh, and the reason why we're talking to you tonight today is because of the, to the, the this push that you're talking about is actually being actively uh, standing up against uh, fascist organizations mm. that uh, are uh, rising up in uh, places around Australia and in other parts of the world. And last yesterday. Uh, nastily enough, uh, a, a splinter, uh, t- a, 
attacking mosques in Christchurch, killing people and uh, uh, and uh, hurting people as well. Um, so I wanted to talk to you about uh, some of the rhetoric that's coming out of the uh, manifesto that the uh, the alleged shooter put out. Uh, which are eerily uh, similar to some of the rhetoric that uh, we hear from uh, uh, some of the the fascist organisations here. Mm, yes. What what uh, I mean, they represent uh, people that uh, often hide behind the notion that it's freedom of speech, and really it's just uh, where uh, white people that are being victimised. Can you talk to that point? Yeah, sure. And, you know, like when I first heard about um, Christchurch yesterday, I immediately also thought back to Pittsburgh last year, um, the Charleston massacre of nine black people in a church in um, 2015. Um, So, I mean, what's been building up uh, over time has been this uh, this white supremacism that is enveloping the world. Uh, no surprise, given that it's a it's a response to a global economy that's floundering. One thing that I'll just mention um, is that Push is going to have a uh, contingent at today's. Uh, stand up against racism in the far right rally. And one of our placards actually addresses uh, what we're talking about. And that placard says, fascists are the shock troops of racist governments. And, and this is what, this is really what we're dealing with. These, um, these far right, uh, violent killers, um, are, the result of, and they're able to do what they do because they are tapping into a well-established and spreading racism and xenophobia uh, that's been building up over decades um, and which actually has come out of our respective governments. So to hear Morrison's condemnation of, um, of yesterday, it just it, it rang so hollow. Yeah, I agree. And uh, Rebecca, you were saying that uh, your partner was actually at university and someone in that uh, lecture theatre was actually watching Facebook. The person who did this was live streaming what they did. Mm. So the sense of terror... Mm. was spread so much further. Yes. Yes, it it just um, amplifies um, the effect and... It's something where it's so important then that those of us who, um, every time we hear about this, we need to be putting it into the perspective of what do we do? Uh, And like I was listening to the responses in, in New Zealand. So, for example, the police were telling Muslims to stay home and not go to the mosques. This is what police tell women all the time mm. with the latest, um, you know, femicide. Or more recently, uh, the Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern is talking about tightening gun controls, which actually entirely misses the point 
and what we on the ground, those of us who are either existing targets or potential targets, uh, really need to be working on building a united front, a united front of all the targets. And I think that this brings us back to the rally today, because today's rally is part of a global um, action, a coordinated action. It's the, today is the UN International Day for the Elimination of Racial Discrimination. So there are rallies against this racism, against this fascism going on around the world. So today is a part of that. And this is where, um, this, is very, this is a very significant uh, development, this resistance, this organized resistance on the ground is what we need. And of course, what we need to be forming out of this is united fronts against the far right and fascism. It's very interesting that uh, uh, fascist speakers uh, are wearing suits and uh, Mm. talking in reasonable voices and Mm. talking about uh, uh, trying to appear as if their ideological point of view is quite a uh, well-argued and reasonable Mm. point of view. Uh, this marks a quite concerted effort to infiltrate the uh, co- uh, common uh, belief structures of society. Exactly. It's, it's these far-right and fascist ideas that are, as you said, infiltrating the political mainstream. So, you know, here in Australia, um, we've got one nation... Um, talking about DNA test, testing of Aboriginal people. We, of course, we know the coalition's record. And um, the ALP has been um, part of this as well in its position on refugees and immigration and law and order against First Nations and African communities and so on. And this, um, this normalizing that, that goes on, um, which includes... The, the hosting and the lionizing of far-right, you know, visitors whenever they come to Australia, such as Milo Yiannopoulos and so on. It's, um, it's, it's, it's an effort to make these far-right and fascist ideas as credible. And also, you mentioned earlier on um, this idea of free speech. And the thing is, we're talking about we're talking about violence and terror and the incitement of violence and terror, which is very different from free speech. Yeah, and it's like, let's have free speech, but if you, like, don't ever mention racism or call me a racist. Mm. Yeah. Like, that's not part of the freedom of speech. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty outrageous yeah, stuff. Very true. You know, something that I've learned from this Christchurch um uh, travesty is that um, Christchurch actually is the home of um, far-right and fascist groups that mm. have grown and gotten a foothold there since the the horrible earthquake where people are really doing it hard. Um, the homelessness is awful. And, and so in New Zealand, um, I think there's an image of New Zealand is like 
you know, um, a paradise and a safe place. But in fact, uh, the far right has been able to organize over there. And uh, people of New Zealand, people of color and Maori are, have been saying for a long time that there is a real, real problem with racism and Islamophobia, again, coming from the government level. Oh, goodness me, that's really interesting. Um, we have to leave it there because we've got, literally got no time at all. Can you tell us the time and the place for the uh, rally today? Yes. Um, now, for those who would like to, to march with PUSH, um, we're meeting at one forty-five at the Sunken Library Sculpture, which is outside the State Library. That's near the corner of Latrobe and Swanston. The rally itself starts at 2 o'clock at the State Library. Great. Thanks very much for talking to us, Debbie. And thank you. Great. And, uh, yeah, we're literally at the wire here on Solidarity Breakfast. Uh, So, uh, like I said, we went to Climate Change uh, Rally. We went to Feminism in the Pub. We told you about uh, tomorrow's uh, Bill of Rights uh, affair going on at uh, Unitarian Church in East Melbourne at 11am. We went on to uh, Kevin's uh, analysis of the week that was, and uh, we went to Venezuela. Well, we've had a busy day. And uh, we... uh, uh, cruised around uh, the uh, area of fascism and uh, anti-fascism in Australia. And uh, that's it. Yes. See you later, Rebecca. Yes, see you next week. <laughs> <laughs> Coming up next is Asia-Pacific Currents.
Oh, oh, oh.